Our text is the rest of this chapter, Acts 10, 44 through 48. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. After the sermon, let's sing hymn 48, stanzas 1 through 4. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, sometime back there was a, a missionary from America who served in Africa. He would come back on his sabbaticals and enthrall his audiences with the stories of mission work and adventure in Africa. But there's one story in, in particular that stunned people, filled them with joy and praise for God. He came to a part of Africa where a white man had never been seen before, the gospel had never been preached, and when he spoke to the chief of the tribe, I have come here to tell you the gospel of the God who sent his son to be the savior of the world, then the chief said, yes, we have long been believers in your God and we have waited for you to come, tell us more. Striking thing is, more missionaries have experienced that same thing. It reminds us of what Paul writes in Romans 1, where he says, All human beings know that God is real and that God exists. Paul is not bringing up some sort of natural theology where, through nature, you can come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, but people know of the existence of God. And in some people, some places, God ripens the hearts of people so that they know there's a God, they know there's a light shining in darkness. They're just waiting for someone to fill in the blanks. Who is this God? What has he done for us? And how can we serve him to his praise and to his glory? This missionary in Africa stumbled on a tribe that said, we know that God exists, please. Just tell us more. In my own ministry, I've experienced on a, a couple of occasions someone who, who grew up in a part of this world which was very repressive. Religion was not allowed. The name of Jesus Christ was not used. But they've told me that from early age, they believed that there had to be something better. There had to be a, a God. There had to be good news. And when they got the first hint of the name of Jesus, they, they stuck to it like, like, like a bee to honey, like a magnet to iron. And they wanted to know more. They were ripe and they were ready. Indeed, as congregation, we, we should be well aware that, that evangelism isn't always an uphill battle. That you've got to go out there and do all the legwork and convince people, you know, God prepares hearts. And there will be people who come in this, these doors and they will want to know the good news of Jesus Christ. And you want to seize that opportunity whenever it arises. 
One thing we do not want is a, a Pharisaic attitude or what you can find in many cults and sects today. I'll quote you a poem. It's absolutely brutal. It's brutal, but it certainly summarizes an attitude that Jesus Christ dealt with. We are the Lord's elected few. Let everyone else be damned. There is no room up here for you. We don't want heaven cramped. You see, nobody would say that. But people are thinking it. Some do. Church is full enough. Who needs more? Who needs people of different color, of different nationality, and different walk of life? We're the church. We don't need more. Horrible attitude. And indeed, in our text this morning, we will see how beautiful it is when God opens doors by grace alone. We summarize our text in this way, Pentecost of the Gentile world. We'll see two things. The Holy Spirit comes on the Gentiles, and Gentiles are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. We have read all of Acts 10. I would suggest you read Acts 11 as well today. We read here about Cornelius. He was a centurion in the Italian regiment in Caesarea. Apparently, even though he was a Gentile, a non-Jew, he was a devout believer in God, together with his entire family. We don't know how he got to that place, although we, we do know he had interaction with Jews, so maybe he was at a level of, a, of an Old Testament Jew who had the Old Testament, who, who knew you know, about the promises of salvation, but he had not yet heard about the good news of Jesus Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But what a godly man. Prayed daily and gave generously to the poor. One day while praying, he has a vision. An angel of the Lord comes to him and instructs him to, to send for Peter, Simon Peter, in Joppa. Immediately he sends off two trusted servants and a devout soldier. Now we see that God moves in mysterious ways. He's got a plan. He executes it. While Cornelius is praying and he has his vision, lo and behold, Peter in Joppa, he's also praying. And he, has a, he falls into a trance. He has a, a vision. And in that vision comes down a sheet with all kinds of animals in it. Uh, we recognize that those animals are clean and unclean. Are you familiar with the concept, Old Testament, ceremonial law, clean and unclean. Some animals were unclean and you were not allowed to eat them. Uh, some people think these are hygiene laws. They may have hygiene value. They're not hygiene. They're spiritual. They're theological. The law of clean and unclean were to remind people of the power of sin and death in this world. Why were you not allowed to eat your own cow that had been torn apart by a lion because that animal that died such a horrible, violent death is a stark reminder of the power of sin and death in this world. It drove people to their knees before God and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And what it did is it directed everybody to the Savior who would come into this world to take our sins on himself and die for that on the cross of Golgotha. That's the one part of the law of clean and unclean. The other part is, and this is not so well known, it's a reminder that Israel is the clean people of God and the rest of the world is unclean. Stay away from them. And they're Gentiles. But what 
God is saying to Peter in this trance is, Peter, the law of clean and unclean is ancient history. It's over. It's finished. It's done. I'm bringing you out of the Stone Age into the Age of the Spirit. It's the kind of language that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 3. No more law of clean and unclean. You have received the Spirit so that you can go out into the world and wherever you go and whatever you do, the Spirit will lead you to live to my praise and to my glory. Peter could get his mind around that, no problem. After all, Jesus had come and redeemed them and poured out his Spirit. What's not so clear, and this is difficult for any Jew, is to be open to a Gentile. There's a lot of prejudice in Israel. You could even say racism, or if you want to use a fancy word, xenophobia, fear of strangers. To be told that the dividing wall of hostility between a Jew and the rest of the world is now broken down is, is quite something. It, it, basically, what the Lord was saying to Peter is, I, I don't care what your color is, I don't care what your nationality is, I care about one thing, do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior? If you have faith, you are saved. Now, Peter's struggling with that, which is it's a funny thing, because Abraham had been told in Genesis 12, by you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And Jesus had said, you know, Pentecost is going to bring the gospel to the whole world. But while Peter is mulling this over, trying to get his mind around it, God says, I'm, I'm not waiting for you, Peter, to get up to speed. There's a knock at the door. The, the, the men from Cornelius are there. Two days later, Peter is in Caesarea. Now, Peter has taken his own people, which is good. Cornelius has brought in his own people, so you got a house just packed with people. And they start to talk, and something amazing happens. I mean, Cornelius already understands this. But Peter begins to realize, too, the dividing wall of hostility is broken down. And he summarized it in verses 34 and 35. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and, and who do what is right. So he could say, Cornelius, you are my brother in the Lord. And, and, he, and he began to preach about how God so loved the world, he gave his son to die for sinners. And whoever believes in him, if you believe in Jesus, all your sins are washed away. And you are born again and an heir of life everlasting. It's amazing. Now, if you think that this is really something, brothers and sisters, you better hold on to your seats, because you're about to take off into the stratosphere. Next thing we read is that while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. And we read that these people who just received the Spirit were speaking in tongues and praising God. If a thunderbolt had hit Cornelius' house that, that day and, and shaken it to the very foundations, that would have even been less startling than what Peter and his fellow Jews just saw. The Holy Spirit came on Gentiles. They were baptized with the Spirit. They were filled with the Spirit. And they began to speak in tongues. Wow! Wow! The theme of our sermon is the Pentecost of the Gentile world. 
What happened in Acts 2 on Pentecost is now being repeated to Gentiles. You can see it that the apostles received the Spirit, right? Everybody can see that. The apostles of Jesus Christ, they're filled with the Spirit. But now so are Gentiles. Just as much. This was Pentecost repeated, but now for the Gentile world. And they began to speak in tongues. What's really important to, to realize, though, is that Paul, when Peter is speaking, when the Holy Spirit comes on them, it's preceded by the words, while Peter was still speaking these words, and then followed by, on all who heard the message. So the event of the Holy Spirit coming down is packaged. It's within the context or the framework of the proclamation of the gospel. It's the hearing of good news and believing that good news that bring around about this amazing event. Now, Peter is probably thinking and strategizing at this moment. I, I don't really know what, what Peter was thinking, but had I been there, had I been the minister who was in that Cornelius house, I, I know what I would be thinking. So this is awesome. And what I'm going to do is I'll keep preaching for a number of days or weeks. At a certain point, I will baptize these people. And then later on, I will lay my hands on them, and they will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's kind of standard operating procedure. That's how these things go. That's what a, a minister would do. But God doesn't go by, by human plans or human strategies. God is thinking, and I, again, I don't know exactly what's in God's mind, but it could be something like this, that God says... These people are hearing the message and they believe. They love me. They believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior and that's it, says God. They receive the Holy Spirit. These are believers who now receive the full measure of the Holy Spirit. Now, this day, unexpected, but such is the awesome power of God's grace. Now, theologically, you might say, would they not have to have the Holy Spirit already in order to believe? And the answer is, of course. Much like a believer in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you cannot believe, except that the Holy Spirit works faith in your hearts. But in the Old Testament, if you think of the Holy Spirit as an image of, 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 of water coming on people, that image is, is used like a waterfall in the Old Testament it was a drip. It was a dribble on the people of Israel. Enough that they believed and were saved. But boy, did they need major precaution. Law of clean and unclean, which Paul in Galatians 3, in, in the Greek anyway, he describes as a, a corral. Like animals in a corral. The Old Testament people were, they were, they were bound and, 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 and made safe. And, and kept away from the rest of the world because they didn't have the power or the ability to get out there. But with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, it's a deluge. It's a full outpouring, a waterfall of the Holy Spirit on a believer. And it's not just speaking in tongues and prophesying, which they did in those days, but it, it, it bursts the chains of the Old Testament. Law of clean and unclean history. God's people as, as one nation finished. Now any human being who is filled with the Spirit, in the words of Jeremiah 31, is in a new covenant. 
Nobody has to tell me anymore what to believe. I know it. It's in my heart. I can walk out into the world. I can go down downtown Edmonton. I can walk on a street where there are prostitutes and drug addicts and street people. And because the Spirit is with me, I'm safe. I will live to the praise and the glory of God. And I will be there for that person to share the good news with them. That's the power of God's grace coming through Pentecost, whether it's that missionary in Africa who found a people ripe and ready for the gospel, or Cornelius, a, a Gentile who was just itching to hear the gospel. The power of God is this, that when the word is delivered, by grace they come to faith, and it can go amazingly quickly beautifully and powerfully that people do believe. They're filled with the Spirit and they are witnesses of God to the world around. So no wonder we read in our text that Peter then said, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have, so he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. I like Peter. Not a perfect man. You know, he, he can get into all kinds of trouble as we see in the, in the Gospels. But Peter was a team player in the kingdom of God. And I say that because, again, if I think, had I been there, I might have said to myself, this is an awesome moment. This is Pentecost for the Gentiles. This is the dawn of a, of a new age. And I'm right in the center. And I'm going to mark this moment. I will be the one to baptize this, all these Gentiles in this home. Peter doesn't do it. He had them baptized. He did not baptize them. It wasn't about Peter. It's not about any man. The whole thing is incognito. The whole thing is, it's not about man. It's about God. He had them baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus is centered. One question that can come up is that Jesus had instructed his disciples to baptize the nations into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here we read only about Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is not a formula. We don't have here a formula statement for how you do a baptism. It's just a hands-on, practical reality. We're talking about salvation. We're talking about people being brought out of darkness into light. And who stands first and foremost in that activity? Who is preeminent? Tell me, who is front and center at this moment in Cornelius' house? It's Jesus. He died for our sins. He's the one who poured out the Holy Spirit that we're born again and can live in this world to the praise and the glory of God. They, these people were baptized in the name of Jesus into a personal relationship with him. And he, in turn, introduced them to the Father who loved them and to a Holy Spirit who dwells in their hearts and will walk with them every day of their lives until Jesus Christ returns. There are two things, brothers and sisters, that we come away with from our text this morning. The first is, how awesome is the grace of God? We talk here about Gentiles, we talk about the world and Africa, but what about you? What about me? Are we not saved by grace? How good God has been to a wretch like me. 
what would really be sad and tragic is that we who, who know it so well, who know the details of our salvation, get complacent and ho-hum about it. Get so caught up in all the things of this world, the pleasures, the, the busyness of life. Brothers and sisters, this shouldn't be a day that goes by in our lives that we don't get on our knees before God and say, Hallelujah, how good it is to know you. You saved me. I love you and I adore you. That passion, that joy of salvation has got to be living in us all the time, brothers and sisters. The second thing is that what our passage teaches us is that we have to be very, very open to the world around us and to any opportunity to share the gospel. Consider this question. When a stranger walked into this building, into this congregation for a worship service, how were they received? Now, I tell you, in, in my experiences, I've seen strangers stand in the vestibule of a church building and nobody, nobody talked to them. I had a minister phone me one time and said, my daughter is studying in, in your city, at university. She's been in your church a few times. Nobody talked to her. She's going somewhere else. I see people right after the worship service go straight to their car. I've seen people who will talk to a visitor once, feel that that's their duty, no follow-up whatsoever. And we can even use good theological arguments like saying, you know, it's, it's all about the word, right? I mean, they're here. They can sit under the gospel. That's the mark of the church, the word. Well, what about the mark of a Christian? Our confessions speak about that too. When a stranger walks in here, you can be absolutely sure they, they, they sense a, a certain attitude, a certain emotion in the congregation. They can smell it like you can smell a good steak on your barbecue. They walk in. They can feel whether there's, there's joy, there's exuberance, happiness to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They feel it. They get pulled in. And, 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 and people want to share with them the good news. You know, some people come in and they're just so eager to hear more of, of the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. And we have to be there for them. So there, there could be some practical things that as churches we, we could think about and implement. And one thing would be that when the worship service is over, nobody goes straight to their car. Unless you got, let's say, a medical reason for doing that. There should be a, a moving away from that club mentality that you always stand with the same people every Sunday. Get away from that group. Meet new people. Walk around. Look for somebody you don't know and go up to that person. Introduce yourself and ask them who they are. Get to know them. Get to know their story. And, and that, one, that one visit, that one meeting isn't enough. Get their name, phone number, email address, and follow it up during the, during the week. And say, do you want to get together for a coffee? Do you want to, want to talk? This opens the door. This pulls people in. And moreover, nobody should live lonely and unloved in the congregation of Jesus Christ. The newcomer, the widow, the widower, the single person, we have to have attention and draw them in. 
to experience the communion of saints. If that's the way it is in a congregation, brothers and sisters, then we who have something so beautiful, that's the good news of Jesus Christ. We will be able to share that with others. And perhaps just as important, you will realize yourself how important it is to know Jesus as Lord. Amen.